Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the prophet Jonah. On Yom Kippur, of course, the portion regarding the high priest and the offering of that atonement once a year, whereby he would enter into the very Holy of Holies, is read on Shabbat, and it's taken from Leviticus chapter 16. But in accordance with this observance, the book of Jonah is studied and read, particularly on Yom Kippur. It's read because there's a tremendous focus on repentance. There's a focus on the grace of God whereby he saves. There's a focus on acknowledging the Lord is the one who saves us and we do not save ourselves. And so this is a passage that is read. It's also the only prophet in Israel that is sent among the Gentiles as he's told to go to the Ninevites. And so we're reminded on Yom Kippur that God's concerns are not only with the people of Israel whom he has chosen, but also with the nations of the world whom he has also created in his own image. And so Yom Kippur is about atonement and God's desire is that the world might be saved. And that each and every individual within the world who has ever lived would come to know him as their Lord and Savior. Jonah speaks to these matters. Now the book of Jonah has also been a book that has been greatly maligned. A book that has often been criticized because is it really possible that a great fish, maybe we can just turn this a little bit, a little echoey for me, that a great fish would actually be able to swallow up a human being. So I was reading recently online uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica, and they had accounts of individuals who were swallowed by great fish, not just whales, but other kinds of fish. One story particularly attracted me. It was recorded somewhere in the 1890s, where a group came out of Massachusetts, Nantucket. You know, those whalers would come out of New England. And as they were hunting down one of these whales, they sent out one of these uh, rowboats, you know, these spearmen on the rowboats. These guys are rowing them close, and they're getting right up on these monsters, man, and they're just spearing them. Well, in the midst of it, you know, the whale is not just going to sit there, but his tail comes up, turned over the, uh, the boat that was out there harpooning, and these guys fell overboard. They rescued all of them but one. 
they captured the whale, brought it alongside, and they began to like cut it up and get its blubber and all that kind of thing. And then they cut up some of its meat. And then they took the innards and they brought its stomach on the deck. And they cut open the stomach and there was the guy. He was unconscious, but they took salt water and they kept dousing him with it, you know. He probably had enough water, but there was there dousing with him and he woke up. And then after he recuperated, they sent him back to work. You know, it's like, you know, you would think, it's a miracle, you know, what's going on? You know, he said, get up there on the deck, you know. But, you know, as I started reading these accounts, he just sort of pass over this, you know. He's just swallowed by a great fish. Then I just started thinking about it. And it's, it's just unfathomable to imagine that happening. And it was Jonah's fault, of course. I mean, Jonah was called to go to Nineveh, and Jonah doesn't want to go. And he's got good reason not to go. If you look at chapter 1, we'll read chapter 2, but if you look at chapter 1, he tells us why he doesn't want to go. And God describes the people. He says they're wicked. And so he's got good reason. These are like bad people. And, uh, you know, I don't know if I want to go in this city. Plus, it's, it's a big place. We read that he, to traverse the city, it was a three-day walk. So he's spending, you know, this is a big place. And we're told there were like 125,000 people who did not know their right hand from their left. It's referring to children. There's like over half a million people in this city. In the ancient world, that's, that's a pretty good-sized city. The archaeologists tell us, and by the way, that would mean that not only did Jonah speak to the city, but also the outlying suburbs of the city. Now, I've never done this, but I guess if you go up to Agora and start walking the length of Los Angeles and then head on down past the airport, San Pedro, and all the way down there to Orange County, like how long would it take to walk that? And we haven't talked about going out to the San Gabriels, going that way. It would probably take a little while to get across. So it gives you an idea of how spread out this ancient city was. And archaeologists tell us the walls around the city of Nineveh were so thick that three chariots drawn by four horses could fit on the tops of those walls. So how wide is that? It's probably about as wide as this room. And as tall, I mean, and then the walls circulating around it. So this was a big city. This was a wicked city. And the most important thing that is on Jonah's mind is the nature of his God. Because he knows that he is compassionate and he's abounding in loving kindness. Last night I drew our attention to Exodus chapter 34. You can turn there if you like, but you don't need to. In Exodus 34, that's the incident of the, or just after the golden calf. And you remember that when Moses comes down from the mountain, the Jewish people are there in revelry, worshiping this golden calf. I love Aaron. You know, when Moses says, where'd this calf come from? He said, well, you know, I took the gold and everything that was given to me, threw it in the fire and bingo, out popped a calf. You know, so what else should we do with such a thing? <laughs> you know, and uh, at least he was, you know. Being real. (laughs) But in Exodus chapter 34, Moses is told, okay, you broke the first set, 
Now you need to chisel out a second set, come back up, and I'll write them once again. And in chapter 34, when Moses, uh, when the Lord appears to him, it says the Lord passes in front, verse 6, it says the Lord, the Lord. I love this, the compassionate and gracious. He says slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness. Now, if you look at Jonah chapter 4, he quotes this passage so that when the Ninevites repent, Jonah is upset. He's upset because God saved them and he didn't want them to be saved because they're so wicked. And he said, I knew this. And he says in chapter 4, verse 2, I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, God, slow to anger and abounding in love. He's quoting what God said of himself to Moses in Exodus 34. He's not the only prophet that does that. Joel in chapter 2 does the very same thing. These men were very much familiar with Moses' writings. And so why didn't Jonah want to go? This was a wicked place. This was a big place. You can get swallowed up in this place. And more importantly, you're too good of a God to save these people. And so Jonah decides to take off. It says that he decided to run away from God. Those of us who have parents, did your kids ever say, I'm running away. (laughs) I'm leaving this place. And they didn't really go very far. But can you imagine saying, I'm running away from God? <laughs> you know? And it's like, you know, God is omnipresent. So you run, you turn around, he's still there. You know, I mean, no matter where you go, if I make my grave in, in Sheol, he's there. If I rise to the heights, he's there. If I run like the flesh, he's still there. So I can't get away from him. But he says, I want to run away from God. And he does his best. He does well. And he goes down to Joppa. And so in the Hebrew text, you see over and over again, he goes down, he goes down, he goes down. So he goes down away from God. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down to the port. He goes down to the boat. He goes down in the boat. He goes down to sleep. And then when there's a storm, he goes down overboard. He goes down to the very bottom of the, of the ocean or the sea. He goes down into the belly of the fish and he's there for three days and three nights. He goes as far down as one could get in this world. And he still couldn't get away from God. Because God was with him there as well. Why? Because he is slow to anger. I mean, if there was a man to be angry with, don't you think that you'd be pretty angry with a guy like this? But God is slow to anger. And he abounds, he overflows, he bubbles up with love. This was just like, oh, this is another opportunity to show everyone how loving I am, <laughs> you know. That's what God is thinking. I could show them my love, you know, by rescuing him. And so in chapter 2, and it's also kind of neat, these sailors are wonderful, right? These are Gentile guys, and they're try, trying to do everything to save Jonah. And while everything's going chaotic upstairs or on deck, Jonah's asleep not even paying attention to anything that's happening. And then finally, when they come to him, Jonah knows, you have to cast me into the hands of God because I'm God's prophet. You need to throw me overboard. And when he does, and they're reluctant to do this, these are good guys. And then finally they do it. I can't imagine that. You know, if you've ever gone sailing, you're out there, you can't see land. To even imagine one of your crew members goes overboard. You know, we used to practice these man overboard drills. 
all the time. And whenever new people came on, that was the first thing we would do. This is what you do if somebody falls overboard. Because we want to make sure we know we have everyone on hand to save the lives of those whose lives may be lost. But here, these guys, these sailors, these are men that have done this all the time. They're going contrary to their whole nature. And they're taking this man and they're throwing him over the side. It's also interesting that when they do that, they turn their attention to God and say, we'll pay our sacrifices and we'll pay our vows. So as Jonah, and by the way, this other thing struck me. I mentioned it last night. It says that when he goes down to Joppa, it says he paid the fare. Never struck me like it has in, uh, presently, but that phrase, he paid the fare. Whenever we run away from God, we pay, you know, we pay the fare. But whenever we do what God wants, he always pays for us. You know, if we embrace him, he's paid the price for our sin. If we don't embrace it, we'll pay the price for our sin. When you see these prophets, it says when he finally gets to Nineveh, it doesn't tell us how he got there. God paved the way for him, paid the price, enabled him to get there. But when he runs off on his own, you pay. And that's how it is in life, isn't it? You know, if we do what God doesn't want us to do, we end up paying. But when we follow his ways, you know, as uh, George Mueller had always said, God's work done in God's way never lacks for God's provision. And that's true of our lives personally, as well as ministerially and in other ways as well. I want to draw your attention to Jonah's prayer, because he's a good prayer. I wish I could really pray like that, you know, like this. When I get in prayer groups, rarely will you hear me pray. I just don't feel adequate to pray very well. But, you know, when I read the prayers of the Bible, I always pray, Lord, help me to pray like this, you know. And um, it's just not been a thing. But in chapter 2, it says, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed. So he's conscious at this point. And look, he prays to the Lord, the sacred name of God. And look at this. This is so wonderful. The Lord, his God. You know, God has not rejected him. Even though he seems to have tried to reject God and God's call on his life, God has not rejected him. He is still his prophet. He's still his servant. And God is still his God. When God calls us to things, it doesn't matter what happens around us. You're still the man, the woman that God has called you to do what he's called you to do. And so you can never get out of it. I said last night, you only have two choices, to do the will of God or to do the will of God. Those are the choices you have. You either do the will of God joyfully and forwardly, or you do the will of God that he gets you to do, and sometimes through very hard circumstances. Jonah sees both, you know. And so here he is, and he prays. And look at this. First of all, I just because I don't want to take too long, let me tell you up front what I'm looking at. Number one, notice the honesty with which Jonah prays. He says, in my distress. That's something we always try to hide, you know. When we're not feeling well, you know, we don't want other people to know. You know? We want everyone to say, hey, we're strong. We can handle this. Everything's under control. But look at Jonah. He's so honest. I guess if I was in the belly of a fish, there's not too many alternatives, right? So he said, in my distress, I called to the Lord. And get this, he answered me. Wow. I mean, that's what prayer is about. God answers our prayers, not just our intercessory prayers, but he receives our praises as well. 
He is enjoyed, I guess that, that's not the right word. He's made joyful by our coming before him, by our praising him. The angels around the throne, holy, holy, holy. And when we join them, he's glorified in that. He's honored. He's made joyful. It's amazing to think about that. But we bring joy to the heart of God when his people praise him. When we worship him, when we acknowledge him, when we follow him, when we exercise faith, even in the most difficult of circumstances, when we do his word, when we abide by it, the Lord is pleased with us. And so if you want to make God happy, do what he wants. You want to make God joyful, serve him with all of your heart, love him with all of your might. And so he answers him. Look at this, from the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Now, there's debate here. At the time he's praying, he's not dead, but many believe that Jonah actually died in the belly of the, of the whale, fish, and that God resurrected him and then had the whale regurgitate him onto the land. I think they're on to something. Because Messiah says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. He said one other thing. He said, no signs would be given to Israel except one, the sign of Jonah. And so what was the sign of Jonah? sign of Jonah is resurrection. And so when Messiah rose from the dead... It led many in Israel to believe. When Lazarus was risen from the dead, it led many to believe. So much so that when he, was, uh, when he had risen, people came to see him before they came to see Messiah. It says that all the crowd, the multitudes came to see Yeshua, but they wanted to see Lazarus. And in the book of Revelation in chapter 11... It says that when the two witnesses are lying dead in the streets of Jerusalem for three days, then the Lord resurrects them. And it says a whole host, a whole remnant of Jewish people believe again. It's resurrection that leads the Jewish people to faith. Think about 1 Corinthians 15. Paul tells us that the thing that led the brothers of Messiah to faith was his resurrection. That's when Yaakov or James came to faith. That's when Judah or Jude came to faith, when they saw their brother, half-brother, whatever, their brother raised from the dead. Jews require a sign, the Greeks' wisdom. The sign is the sign of Jonah, the prophet, the resurrection of the dead. So it appears that he really did cry from the grave. He says in verse 3, his honesty, and I love this too. Jonah does not blame anybody else for his predicament. How prone we are to point the finger at others. But Jonah knows what the reason is for him being in the belly of the fish. And there are two reasons. One, he ran from God and he knows he deserves it. And secondly, God has placed him there. That's what he says. You hurled me into the deep. He doesn't talk about the sailors. They were just acting under the orders of the Lord. They were his instruments. But it was God who hurled him into the deep, into the very heart 
of the seas. And the currents swirled about me. Your waves, look at that. Not the waves of the Mediterranean or the Great Sea, but your waves and breakers swept over me. And so the honesty is incredible. I said, I have been banished from your sight. And I would have deserved to have been banished from your sight because I rejected your call and I walked away from you. He says, you yet, and here's that hope, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. So I want you to see when you read this prayer, how honesty is. But look at the second thing. I can't imagine this. In the belly of the fish, his prayer is not only honest, but it's thankful. Look what he says in verse 8. He says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs, but I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice for to you. I mean, if Jonah had any reason to be angry with God, this was a pretty good one. This is a pretty good one. Think about our own lives. How often have we experienced a setback, a disappointment, a challenge, and we say, God, how could you do this to me? Why would you let this happen? But Jonah says, you know, I'm really thankful to God because he has a purpose in this hard thing that's for my good. And I deserve it because of my sin, my waywardness, or my part in some way. That's the hardest thing, isn't it? To really be able to look deep enough to say, where am I at fault? But Jonah was honest. Jonah was thankful for what God would be to him. You know, it sort of reminds me of David. You remember at the end of the book of Samuel, 2 Samuel 24, where it speaks about David numbering Israel and the judgment of God falls because he didn't trust in God, but he was trusting in his own pride and what he was able to accomplish. And so the Lord says judgment will fall, but you can choose what you would, how you would want to be judged. I could send an army against you. I could send a pestilence upon you. Or he said one other thing. What's that? Famine. That's right. Or I could send a famine against you. And he decides, you know, if I'm going to fall into the hands of anyone, I'm going to fall into the hands of God. And so he said, the Lord, I think it was, that sent a pestilence. And so he said, I'm going to just, I'm not going to trust the enemy or nature, right? I'm going to trust God. And so he chose the right thing, didn't he? Because as the judgment begins to hit, God says, you know, that's enough. And he tells the angel to stop because he's slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. And so Jonah, the same thing. This is all about God and what God's intentions are for Jonah. And so he's not angry with God. He's not angry with God because of his predicament. In fact, he's thankful that God is with him, that God can hear his prayer. And he's hopeful that God will restore him. Like the three, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, that go into the fiery furnace. Look, we're not going to bow down to any of your gods, Nebuchadnezzar, and the Lord will deliver us. But if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down to your gods. Jonah is saying, I'm going to see the temple. But even if I don't, you're my God. I deserve this, and I will worship you. So his prayer is honest. 
His prayer is a prayer mingled with thankfulness. His prayer is a prayer of confession in which he acknowledges that he is the one at fault and he deserves what he has experienced. But there's one final thing I'd like you to see. Look at this line where he said, and by the way, verse 8, this whole idea of confession. He says, those who cling, and this is really a key verse, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Jonah had clung, is that a word? I don't know. Grasped a worthless idol, his own desires to walk out on God. And he knew what a mistake I made. Because when you do that, the grace of God becomes fleeting, you know. His grace is there, but judgment may fall. And disciplinary actions may be taken. But if we cling to worthless things, we legitimately thereby forfeit the grace of God that is offered. I want to come back to that, but look at what he says here. He says, but I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. And then he says, what I have vowed, I will make good. That phrase struck me because when you look at chapter 1, this is exactly what the Gentile crew members said to God. Look at verse 15. They took Jonah, threw him overboard into the raging sea, and it grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. They offered a sacrifice and they made vows to him. What it suggests to me is, notice the basis upon which Jonah calls out to God. He doesn't say, he doesn't say but God, I am your prophet. He doesn't say, God, I am a Jew, a part of your chosen people. He just looks at himself as a human being that is now at the mercy of God. That's what the sailors were like. All their gods went astray. All of their gods were put aside. And now they thought objectively, we need to cast ourselves before the living God. And so they say, we will pay the sacrifice to him, to you, and we will fulfill our vows to you. There's always both. Salvation is always the result of the objective work of God, his sacrifice in our behalf. And it always involves the subjective response to the grace of God. We will pay our vows. We will walk in your ways. We will be faithful to you. And with your help, we will follow you all the days of our life. And so Jonah concludes his prayer, this prayer that is a prayer of honesty, this prayer that has an element of thankfulness, a prayer that has an element of confession, and a prayer that acknowledges that it must be God who saves us on his own terms and not we ourselves because of something we can present to him that will earn our good favor in his eyes. It is he to whom the sacrifice is offered and the vows must be paid. And thus, Jonah says at the very end, salvation comes from the Lord. That's where our salvation comes from. On his terms, not ours. And thus, what a great reminder this is of our faith in Messiah Yeshua. Salvation comes from the Lord. He provides it for us. 
And just as he said, just as Jonah was in the belly three days and three nights, and it led to his salvation, so Messiah's death, burial, resurrection, three days and three nights, is the means by which our salvation can be experienced today. If you have never embraced Yeshua into your heart, you need to do that. If this Yom Kippur is going to be truly a day of atonement that can only come by what Messiah does for us, it can only come by what the Lord provides for us. The Lord saves us and not we ourselves. It doesn't matter how often you fast, how often you pray, how much scripture you memorize, how often you go to services, how much you give. None of those things will earn you any audience with God. The only thing that will enable us to stand before him is his grace as provided through Messiah, Yeshua. So years ago when I worked for Chosen People Ministries, they had a tract that used to say, a day but no atonement. But it can be a day of atonement. In fact, every day can be a day of atonement. Any day can be a day of atonement if it's a day in which you acknowledge Yeshua as Messiah and Savior. And when you do, it is your day of atonement. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this Yom Kippur. We are mindful, Lord, of your grace that permeates your creation. Lord, we are greatly privileged that you would do this for us. We are encouraged to know that you are slow to anger and desirous of saving to the ends of the earth. And so, Lord, if any do not know you this morning, might you open their heart and may they sing songs of thanksgiving. And Father, for those of us who do know you, may you do the same and may you work in our midst and in our lives and internally in such a way that we, Lord, would manifest the very character of your holy self. May we make Messiah known not only through our words, but also through our lives, through our actions, and through our attitudes. Father, it is he who is deserving of all honor, praise, and glory. And it is he alone who is deserving of being seen. So may you reveal yourself to us, whatever our circumstances and situations might be, that we would follow you all the days of our life. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.